So welcome to the show. I'm David Speed. I'm Adam Brazier. And this is Creative Rebels. Uh, it's a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. We started our first company, Graffiti Life, in a small garage. Yeah, it wasn't easy. But we built the company up to the stage where now we're regularly working with brands like Disney and Nike. And we've been lucky enough to make art all over the world. On this podcast, we interview successful creators. Their advice will enable you to take action and turn your passion into a career. There's literally been no better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people are going to tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to tell you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Oh, that was excited. I know, I feel like I'm in a much better mood this week, just because I'm a lot less tired. Were you in a bad mood last week? No, I was just really tired. So tired. Right. Mine's probably going to be awful this week, because I'm so tired. <laughs> okay. Um, because my days are now... So you know I go to bed at 10. Yeah. I've been going to bed at midnight every night, because I've been finishing graffiti life work at about 8 o'clock, and then start, uh, we don't have a receptionist in parlour at the moment, so I have to go through the inbox answer every single email book clients in and manage everything for parlor that makes a lot of sense that i've been waking up to a lot of your texts that are, would normally be after the time that you'd have gone off screens yeah so yeah that makes a lot of sense yep i've been a busy boy so i'm i'm dying but um <laughs> but loving life so it's all good this week we've worked for we did a project for ralph Laurent. And then yesterday I was working for Virgin Media and we did our big Burt's Bees installation. In yeah, that Covent was Garden. amazing. That got so much press. I yeah. think that that was a great team effort of everyone coming together and just absolutely smashing it. Like Kaylee, who managed that, did a fucking great job. Yeah, she was amazing. It was uh, it was really, really great project. And yeah, it's had a lot of press. I mean, it was a 3D street art. So like an yeah. illusion where if you take the photo from the from the magic place, it looks like you were like kind of looking down a waterfall, which is yeah. really, really clever. Um, do you remember the first time we painted a 3D piece of street art? The one on South Bank? Yeah. Yeah, that was really cool, actually. Like, I think it was a bit optically wrong, but um, it still looked pretty cool. But yeah, we were basically painting this a 3D hand bursting out of the floor holding a spray can. And we thought, oh, we'll do it down South Bank because there's loads of graffiti down there. It's like a legal area to paint. So we started doing this thing on the floor. And then after about an hour, the security came and moved us on because allegedly the painting on the floor would distract the skaters which would cause, cause them to fall off and be dangerous <laughs> I, could, I didn't remember that that was the yeah, reason they gave was, us yeah and the fact that loads of people were painting those bright neon things all over the walls made no difference to them but because about six meters away from where anyone would skate on the floor there was a small yeah. thing that might distract them um yeah we got moved on so we never got actually got to finish that <laughs> That's so yeah, so funny. It's really it's really challenging to to do those three D um, pieces, and and we learn a lot just doing that oh, first one. Absolutely, like just the mathematics side of things. Like I've like doing this one, I forgot how much effort and detail goes into it. Like I had a whole desk full of just different papers of different like angles. I had to go and buy a protractor because I'd not used <laughs> one of those in years, and it's a lot of maths. And like this is where like Pythagoras theorem and trigonometry came in very, very useful. So, so funny. Cause like I say all the time, like, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, when was the last time like dissing school? Like, Oh, when was the last time that you used Pythagoras's theorem? I was like, Oh, actually last week. Yeah. Actually, every time I grid up a reference for you, I use Pythagoras theorem for that. Thanks mate. That's all right. Um, so for everyone who says it's not useful, my life is a example of how it is. It's uh, been busy, but we've still been finding time to answer your DMs and emails to us um, at Rebels Create on Instagram. Connect at rebelscreate.com. 
and uh, had some interesting queries from you guys this week. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a pattern that I think started to form about people who are a bit lonely, effectively. Like yeah. they've gone from working in corporate environments or bigger environments where they're with a team every day and they've now gone off on their own to start something and they're a bit lonely. Yeah, which is, it makes perfect sense because whenever I have a wobble, I can come to you or Yana and say, yeah. I'm not sure if this is a good business decision and you go, yes, it is or no, it isn't. And if you're a, if you're on your own, then you can't do that. You have yourself to rely on, which is which is tough, man. And I think, yeah, a lot of people have been saying about the podcast, they've just been saying like, oh, so glad this podcast exists because it helps me feel like I'm not alone. Yeah, and I think a lot of people listen to it when they're creating as well, don't they? And yeah. having that person there that when they think, should I do this, shouldn't I? Like we happen to answer the question for them at that exact right time. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And I, I love that we can be that for people. I love that we can do that. And and like, if you're listening to this right now, like you are, you are not alone. Like you can reach out to us. You can reach out to like anyone on the internet might be able to help you. It's worth just dropping them a line. Yeah, I was talking the other day to a couple from Underpinned who came to film us for an interview. And we started talking about creativity and meeting people and not being lonely and this kind of thing. And we kind of got onto the topic of like dating and how the guy from there had met a lot of people he now works with through kind of like dating, like on a relationship level. But that kind of got me thinking to how if you are a creative, you should go and basically have friendship dates with people who are in your field and who yeah. do similar things. I was out last week with a fellow photographer who went for like drinks and dinner and just like had a really cool time. And that was great to be able to sit and talk with someone about your craft and kind of talk about different ways to help each other and that kind of thing. And yeah, it was just a really, really nice way to meet people. I think people see dating as definitely a relationship style thing, but you can still make friends through that. And I think it's such a great way to do one-on-one networking. I guess it's just that we talk about it all the time, but that is the power of the internet and our connection has never been, has never been easier. And for me, I feel like taking it off of online as soon as possible and turning into into a real life relationship. I think that's why it's so important for me to do these our interviews in person mm-hmm. because not only are we we having I think better conversations because we're in person and there's no Skype lag or any of that sort of stuff, but also the bonds that we have with the, with our guests now are so much stronger because I mean I've done a million Skype interviews and I don't remember half of the the people the that hosts, have interviewed me, yeah. but the people that I've met in person, I remember them. And especially if we kind of, if we got on well and, um, and you know, there's the like science of when you actually touch someone, yeah. um, something happens in your brain or something that you, you form deeper bonds and deeper connections. It's, I guess it's just a really, a really human sort of thing. And just, yeah, it's, it's just so important, isn't it? Because like I always say, the people you meet will change your life. Yeah. Um, and so in order to change your life as much as possible, meet as many people as possible because you never know which direction you're going you're gonna to take it in. Yeah, and I think that's, that's really important because a lot of people do think, it's fine, I can do it on my own. I don't need other people to help me. But you really do. Like finding, meeting people, making friends, making connections is so important to be successful. Like it's not, like you do get the odd person who makes it on their own, but most successful people have got there with the help of other people. Well, look at Stormzy, right, this week. So we yeah. just painted a mural of Stormzy on our on our studio roof. Um, you can find that on the Graffiti Life uh, Instagram account. And um, I, like I've been lucky enough, I did, a, did an event with um, 
a couple of members of Stormzy's management recently. Um, and I was chatting with them at length and it was so clear to me, like he has got the most incredible team around him. Mm-hmm. And like, obviously the guy's talented through the roof, Yeah, but, and his, and his work's fucking hard. Like his work ethic is, is, is really admirable. Through meeting that team, just realizing like they are such a reason for his success. And he's, he's handpicked his team. He's like, he's not gone for like industry people. He's gone for people he's grown up with. Together, they're like, they're so strong and they're such smart cookies. Like literally, I felt so energized after that conversation. And a lot of it was us mentoring um, kind of younger people who were asking us questions and I was bouncing off of his team. And it, yeah, it was, I just think they're, they're such amazing people and they deserve all the credit that they can get. And I think when we were, um, when we were interviewed the other week and we were talking about the loneliness um, for freelancers, one of the questions they said was like, what, what do you think has to change for freelancers? And my answer was transparency. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're doing with this podcast is like 100%, like we don't charge people for this content. Like we just put it out for free on the internet to help people. And because we've done that, it's been so crazy, the opportunities that have opened up for yeah. us, like insane, which was not the goal. We were just trying to help people. And then Stormzy stands on stage and he shouts out 65 other MCs. Mm-hmm. And it's like, put other people on. Do you know what I mean? It's like, don't don't be scared, like collaborate, find other people, work with them, do do things together because the, the results are just like fucking phenomenal. If you are feeling like you're on your own with this, like come and sit with us. Like we're in the Apple store for the next four weeks, starting the 11th of July. Yeah, that really big news. We are so excited about this. So um, this has been on the cards for a while and we've wanted to announce it, but we haven't been able to. But yeah, we've just confirmed we're going to be doing four live podcasts in the Apple store in Covent Garden. First one is on the 11th of July. Um, and yeah, you'll, you'll literally be in a room full of people that feel the same way that you do. Uh, we'll be talking about all of those sort of problems. You can come and network with us. You can come and network with our guests. Who's our first guest? Our first guest is Alice Living. Uh, which I'm super excited about. She's a friend of mine and massive in the fitness world. She is the queen of influence. Like she knows how to grow an audience. You don't have to be interested in fitness at all to get like, she's just gold when it comes to tactics of like how to grow a brand and a business online. So yeah, we'll be posting details on how you can come along to those events. If you are in London, come and see us. There's no ticket charge. It's absolutely free to come and see us. Um, and as we always say, we will stay until every single question is answered. Um, they shut the, the store at eight, but we'll go into a pub if there's still people who want to ask questions. So yeah, if you can't make it down and you don't live in London, maybe try and find another kind of creative thing in your area. And if that doesn't exist, then maybe it's time you started it. Yeah, just start your own thing. I mean, even if it's even if you start your own podcast, um, that that can bring people to you. Yeah, like, start a community somewhere, where, yeah. wherever that is online. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. So for us, when we first started, we had each other to bounce off of. We actually got a, a DM. I think it was last week, but that was talking about I've just started my business, but or I'm just about to start my business, and I don't know whether I should just be a, a lone wolf or whether I should bring more people in. It just depends on the business, whether you can sustain bringing other people in and whether that's something that you want to do. We could do our job at Graffiti Life with a significantly smaller team, but we choose to have a larger team because we want to provide more opportunities for as many artists and creatives as we can. So we try and do that here, but it's all a decision. But I do think a strong team can create so many opportunities. Yeah, that really links in nicely to this week's guest, um, Joe from Ugly Drinks. He talks a lot about 
the importance of growing a strong team and how he's seen brands that he's worked with before grow from pretty much non-existence into being the market leader. Yeah, because everyone was aligned with the same mission. Yeah, absolutely. When you hire anyone and if you've got any, if you're building any kind of team, make sure that people share that same vision. That's more important than anything else. Yeah, for sure. Joe and his business partner, Hugh, were employees at Vita Coco and watched the brand grow from an obscure, unknown coconut water to an absolutely dominant brand that's available everywhere. And they thought, we can do that. So they did. Ugly was started on a shoestring budget just three years ago, but has grown hugely. They're stocked in over 4,500 stores across the UK and have just launched in America. Ugly are a perfect case study of how strong branding can grow a brand fast. In this episode, we talk about launching a product, disrupting the market, and teamwork. I think a huge part of it, and again, this is something we, we massively have taken to Ugly and, and, and learn on every day, is just the team. Mm-hmm. If the team of people is motivated and driven to achieve the goal, then, then you can do amazing things. Hey, how's it going? Good, very good, thank you. Thanks for coming on our podcast. Pleasure. Um, have you always been entrepreneurial, would you say? Ooh, um, yeah, I would say so. Uh, <laughs> straight in, I, I'd say I, I probably wasn't that kid who was like buying Mars bars from the cash and carry and like flogging them at school, yeah. but more uh, the kid who was like <sighs> figuring out the maths behind stuff. I would be in like a restaurant as like a... 13 year old and be like whoa like there's 25 people in here and they're like everyone's gonna spend on average and I was like kind of always doing doing that math in my head so yeah I I definitely was known for my schemes I would say (laughs) that makes it sound bad but yeah what was your most elaborate scheme as a child geez don't know actually I had a mate who used to go to Thailand and and get a load of like knockoff diesel jeans and then we did actually there yeah, I guess it was that kid <laughs> did used to then resell them in school for a, for a tidy profit so that kind of thing I guess <laughs> I, I sold some French bangers I think that was a yeah. that was a big business uh, basically uh, anything illegal is yeah, popular yeah, in school yeah. oh yeah there was one kid who had um, <clears throat> ninja stars and yeah. Like, yeah we were we went insane for those. Yeah. Like real ones you would throw into one. Yeah, yeah. We'd throw them into trees at school. Yeah. Remember, have you, did you ever see like where you could like throw a playing card and it like flies really well? Yeah. And uh, we made those out of metal in DT. Oh my gosh. So like we could like literally launch them across like the field at school. Like if they hit a hit someone, it would have been absolutely chaotic. But <laughs> I feel like when you're a kid, those little like naughty things are a bit like fun. They seem less fun. Yeah. Uh, sorry. They seem more fun and less dangerous. Yeah. Until something really bad happens. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you feel, I guess you, you're sort of, you feel like you're invincible when you're a kid, don't you? I used to skate and like you, you just bounce and you just feel like you can take over on the world. And I just used to slide down handrails with like, without thinking any, anything of it. Yeah. And like now, I, like I went, I went skating like, well, it's a couple of years ago now, but I fell over and like, I thought my, all my bones had shattered. I just couldn't move. It was the worst. It's not, it's not funny anymore, is it? At this age, it's just painful. <laughs> Getting old. Um, so where did you work before setting up Ugly? So I was at another drinks brand, uh, Vita Coco Coconut Water. That's where I met Hugh, my co-founder. Amazing place to be because I joined as 
I was the second employer in the UK. I was an intern. So it was just a bit of everything. The brand was tiny at the time. It was kind of doing revenue of probably well under a million. And then ended up staying there for four years. Brand grew like crazy. Went from kind of a, what the fuck is coconut water? Why is it so expensive? Yeah. And why does it taste gross? To like just everybody loving it. And uh, yeah, by the time we time Hugh and I both left, it was probably like a 40 million pound business. So what we were exposed to in that four years was yeah. incredible, really. Learned so much. If anything, probably uh, had too good an experience in that it made it seem easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so Hugh and I kind of, as we went to start the business, almost had this kind of overconfidence in terms of what was possible and yeah. in what time frame. And actually, I think learned a lot of lessons along the way and sort of understood how the structure of Vitacoco was actually very different. You know, we were like a, a UK arm of Vitacoco. We weren't actually like a true startup in that sense. We already had like a big US mothership kind of supporting us and helping us, which means you can kind of skip a lot of the startup troubles in a way. And I guess that I guess that's a good thing in a way because had you had like a true realistic <laughs> We'd never interpretation. Have done it. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> no, for sure. I think it's like we talk to so many other founders and entrepreneurs and I think it's always a grass is greener thing. Like I'm jealous of the founders who have no idea what they're doing and therefore just are blind, kind of yeah. fearless go into everything with just utter belief in what they're doing and they're jealous of maybe us because we have had experience and know how buyers work and that kind of thing so yeah I, I guess um yeah no matter what your previous experience you kind of always look at everyone else and go oh wish I had that but um yeah amazing amazing experience for us and just learned a lot about not just I guess the the food and drink industry, but like brand and lifestyle brands and how you really transcend like product as such. Because, you know, there was lots of like coconut waters, but there was only Vitacoco really kind of doing anything yeah. particularly exciting at that time. Yeah. What, what do you think it was about Vitacoco that made it so successful? I think a huge part of it, and again, this is something we, we massively have taken to ugly and, and, and learn on every day, is just the team. Mm-hmm. If the team of people is motivated and driven to achieve the goal, then then you could do amazing things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we built like a crack team essentially at Vitacoco. If, you know, I, I, the reason I kind of joined as an intern and then ended up staying four years was just because I was super inspired by the people I was working with. Mm-hmm. Just felt probably for the first time in my life like I was super excited to be there whereas at like school and uni I was kind of just like ugh, like wasting time messing about I knew I was learning tons and what is it do you think that brings that excitement like what makes that good team I think it was a kind of for sure like a belief in the in the mission you know like obviously it's a bit of a cliche but I don't think I personally, for example, could sell anything, Mm -hmm. but if I believe in it, I can sell it, you know, really hard. And I think everyone there kind of was massively bought into what we were trying to like build about Coco. And I'd say also, yeah, just like you look, you looked at the the way that people worked around you and like the hours they were putting in, it kind of like shifted my mentality where, you know, previously I've kind of been like, cool, how, how can I do this as quickly as possible so I can go and do something else that I enjoy? Yeah. Suddenly it was like, oh yeah, I'll stay till like 8 PM. No problem. Cause this is awesome. It just was, a, was a different environment to what I'd experienced before. It must've been really hard to leave then. <laughs> uh, sort of, but I think if you can imagine a company that grows like that, 
going from yeah two three people at the beginning mm-hmm. to you know by the time time we left maybe like 40 odd people yeah it's a very different business that feels very different a lot more process and structure and kind of a, a slightly more corporate feel and maybe a lot of that like founding team that we had initially loved working yeah. with so much either weren't there or had gone on to do kind of different roles in different parts of the business so for, for for us, it was definitely time. But uh, yeah, like business has obviously gone on to continue to do some great things. So, so interesting because when, when you said that, I I figured you were going to say like why why were they successful? I thought you were going to say like oh it just was the right time. Coconut water just kind of caught the public's imagination. I totally didn't expect you to say it was because of the team, and and it's such an important factor that that I mean I was overlooking it, but I think so many people overlook that. The timing is obviously like a key factor, but I think it's easy to look back and go, oh, it's just the right time. But actually almost the right team could kind of pu- could have pulled off anything at any yeah. time, if you know what I mean. And I think, yeah, reality is like there'd been loads of coconut water in the market for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still, you know, five years before, 10 years before White Cocoa, it still had all the same health credentials and all the same opportunity to succeed in a way. But yeah, I think that like that potent combination of like timing, team, like, yeah, some of the other kind of like macro things that were going on at the time, like people talking about sugar more and that kind of thing, all kind of contributed. And then obviously those same factors that then got like stronger and stronger were kind of why Hugh and I began to think about ugly as a concept whilst we were there so how did that conversation first come about is it sort of like a, a, a almost like whispers in the corridor kind of like oh should we do this for ourselves <laughs> it's a funny one and uh, i promise this is true but we never actually said to each other or asked each other shall we start this business like it was just <laughs> happening we're both incredibly uh, i guess like interested curious people particularly in like this industry so yeah we sort of kind of caught the bug and we would do things like just spend like hours standing in like a whole food store just like buying drinks taking a sip like throwing them away just watching people buy stuff and it wasn't because we were like hey let's start a business so let's do this research it was more just super interesting to us um as weird as that sounds and there was you know like there's some great kind of platforms like there's a platform called BevNet which is like a US based uh, beverage content platform essentially and you know like years and years ago when was this like eight nine years ago I don't think anyone in the UK was following BevNet really except for like me and Hugh basically (laughs) Uh, sometimes they'd do like live streams and you could see the number of people watching and it was like the total (laughs) the total number of people watching was like 60 and it was like right well most of them are going to be in the US like it was only us at 10pm like live streaming BevNet so everyone um, else was down the pub you guys yeah yeah so it just sort of happened we we were asking ourselves a question well there's a lot that went into it, i suppose we were genuine genuinely kind of curious anyway about the industry and trends and what was going to happen next then we both went out to japan actually with Viacoco so spent some time with the team in Tokyo and I don't know if you guys ever been to Japan but I haven't no no, not yet crazy crazy drinks market out there so they just have some awesome stuff that we don't have here they have uh, a whole section of the fridge which is hot and you get like hot cans straight out the fridge well I say fridge whatever that's called so like hot fiery ginger beers that are hot and then you get this whole section of the fridge which is unsweet and it's like unsweet green teas unsweet matcha teas they taste incredible people buy them like crazy we were drinking them and you just kind of just begin thinking like it's so weird that we don't have that section in the UK why like we just have sugar sweetener water yeah so kind of you know that that gets you thinking and then sort of came back and 
became like increasingly frustrated with the lack of that kind of product started wondering whether we could create something that was basically nutritionally water mm-hmm. but tasted better and also was like a fun brand yeah because you look at water at least kind of you know four or five years ago <clears throat> it was just plastic bottles with mountains on the front like mm-hmm. every brand essentially yeah. or it was like super premium bougie water yeah. but none of the like personalities that you get in other categories so yeah just kind of started like batting this idea around and then reached out to like a food scientist guy uh, it was funny because we didn't we got given an email address and it was just like king of drinks at gmail or something along those lines and we're just like who is this guy like, i don't even know his name but dear king of drinks um, and he just kind of we just started talking to him and trying to figure out how we would make this liquid and it turned out that yeah we could use like natural fruit flavors so extracts and essences and aromas to give the the, the liquid like a subtle flavor mm-hmm. and nutrition it would still be water so we just started doing that and then we had all these kind of weird looking like lab bottles in our fridges and suddenly it was like i think we are maybe starting a business now Um, (laughs) and then we sort of progressed from there but because we were still working for a drinks brand at the time we had to be a little bit covert and it maybe took us longer than it could have done because we were doing everything under the radar um Mm -hmm. And we had to kind of get everyone to sign NDAs and, you know, like the industry's small. So as soon as you start talking. Yeah, um, spreads quick. Word spreads, yeah, exactly. And was there any sort of negative reaction to that when the word did start to spread? No, it was super positive. We were we were able to essentially keep it quiet until the day we, we handed our notice. And um, yeah, we, we got like nothing but really like support and, and really? the blessing of, mm. of Viacogo, which was nice. Yeah, I think like... there's that like awkward moment when it's like what are you going to do what is it what's the brand like is it directly competitive in our space oh no you're good you guys are fine (laughs) um but that it's like a it was a it was a strange day for sure like handing a notice in after four years so have you had any more contact with the king of drinks do you (laughs) Um, know like any more about do you know what the king of drinks um we ended up i think not working with him when it actually came to launching the brand he was our kind of first sensei into this world of of drinks development um i think he just slipped off into the night somewhere i don't know mysterious as usual yeah the myth remains nobody knows who he is amazing (laughs) what did you learn from watching consumer behavior when you were just spending your time hanging out in whole foods i think the really obvious one is like brands people love brands and you know whole foods is like a really interesting environment where on the one hand it's kind of like a health shop and on the other hand it's like this like kind of brand trend led place and so they almost always have four or five versions of anything and if you look at how you know there might be five kombuchas or five coconut waters but like it was basically the same one that people were always picking up and it was due to like the way that that brand was talking to consumers obviously like on the shelf in the moment but just generally in in their comms around that um and when you walk in you can kind of you can kind of always just see which brands are like winning and yeah so we just we kind of really especially especially for a a liquid that is in many ways so simple it's mm-hmm. like a very simple carbonated water with some natural kind of fruit flavors in there like the brand has to be strong and it has to mean something for us to kind of build the momentum that we that we need to so how did you plan your brand, the brand of Ugly? Was that flip charts and, and 
sticky notes on the wall and things like that. There's a bit of that. It, it kind of came down to this, like, it's like stage one was just, what do we call it and what's it stand for? And there was kind of just like two routes. There was the like safe route where we would have called it something you would expect a water brand to be called like well water or yeah. cool did, did you water. have an alternative name but... um yeah when we f- when we first were just trying to figure out whether the the liquid would work mm-hmm. and we didn't even know that we were calling the project splash water just because we were like oh it's just a splash That's of, cool. I like that, of yeah. something once we started really thinking about it we very quickly realized like we didn't want to go down that safe obvious route we wanted to go down a much more disruptive route really like our goal was to disrupt like the big soda companies rather than kind of the water companies yeah and so yeah we we needed something that kind of made us stand out and was different uh we basically just wrote up a list of like offensive words um (laughs) some of them were much more offensive and we decided we couldn't use those but yeah ugly was one that kind of stood out almost immediately it kind of represented everything that Hugh and I were feeling, which was like, we kind of wanted to uh, almost like expose some of the ugly truths in the industry, in the wider world. And it kind of gave us this platform to do that. So yeah, we, I think once we kind of wrote the name down, we pretty much immediately loved it. And then I think 24 hours later, we, we suddenly were like, can we, can we do this? Like, what will my grandma say? Like, yeah. And actually my, my grandfather did literally write, me a list of names that we should call it other than ugly because he was really just <laughs> not confident in that name uh, i still have that list somewhere it's quite a good list of the next business yeah yeah <laughs> but they're all really weird names because my my, gran- my grandfather is of polish origin they're all these like strange like hybrid polish english words yeah um, amazing so yeah anyway that's one for the museum hopefully but um, <laughs> yeah and uh and then we kind of G'd ourselves up again and we're like, no, we're going to do it. We're just going to call it ugly. Like, fuck it. And uh, yeah, just sort of developed the whole brand personality and brand platform from essentially that that word. How did you do that? Was it just the two of you? So initially we did it in like a very sort of cheap, small scale way. So we worked with uh, like a branding agency, but like it was like friends branding agency that very much gave us a very very cheap rate mm-hmm. and we sort of developed this initial concept but with sort of no real money and resource behind it so it was basically just like the word ugly made to look good nothing too fancy at all as the business has grown and we put ourselves in a position where we were able to work with uh, invest more in developing that brand identity mm-hmm. we worked with a bigger agency jones knowles ritchie to kind of flesh out the the kind of vision that hugh and i had and that's been like an iterative process mm-hmm. um it's obviously still ongoing but they've been amazing partners of ours sort of one thing that they definitely get credit for is like this sort of you tongue on the yeah, can yeah. they kind of found that icon from kind of everything we've been doing previously you know we used to like pose with cans and stick our tongues out and stuff and yeah. they just kind of like that's what you guys do you stick your tongues out at the industry at society you do things your own way that's like this encapsulates you mm-hmm. and yeah it's been super exciting working with them have you had any resistance for it being called ugly uh, or has it gone better than you kind of imagined 
I think when we when we decided to call it ugly, we very much felt like we'd rather some people loved it, some people hated it. Yeah. We wanted people to really feel something. If anything, it's been less divisive than we expected. Most people like it, get it, particularly in the US. We launched in the US about a year ago. Um, and again, we weren't quite sure if like Americans would get it, but like they do, they love it. There's obviously the odd funny reaction when people don't quite understand. I'd say quite clearly the, the the brand is aimed at sort of a younger like millennial gen z consumer and i think like yeah sometimes people over a certain age just can't quite wrap their head around why it would be yeah. called ugly so all in all it's been super positive reaction and i think to be honest like probably one of our greatest assets when it comes to um whether it's like talking to investors or retailers like it is certainly memorable um and yeah we tend to get quite good kind of pick up and press coverage because it's a fun thing to talk about how many ingredients do you have so the product is literally carbonated water and then the natural flavors from whichever fruit we're using so for example like the lemon and lime is just literally like natural lemon flavors natural lime flavors that's it so when we initially launched the product we for example put like citric acid in which is what uh, a lot of soft drinks companies use and it just kind of adds to like the mouthfeel but we sort of constantly are trying to improve and iterate the products and we found a way of being able to remove that from the product so it is from from our perspective like as clean as it can possibly be and that was obviously something super important to us we have this platform of transparency so you know we we didn't want to be like hiding um e-numbers or like sweeteners in the product so how did you sell your first product so the first ever stockist we had was selfridges Mm -hmm. and i suppose in a way we had a slight advantage in that we had some experience in the industry so we're able to kind of speak to the buyer who had worked with previously and just say like we want to launch with you guys and Mm -hmm. all the way through we've we've had this kind of concept of like just prove that this works and then scale and so with selfages it was super simple like for the first two weeks we basically spent every single day Hugh and I in there talking to consumers trying to get feedback on the product on the brand um, and just you know like literally like sold like crazy yeah and just went from there really did that selfages then go to plan yeah, it went really well and, and it kind of gave us the case study to then go to like Whole Foods and Planet Organic and Sourced Market. Kind of, I think it's quite like a traditional model for relatively small scale yeah. food and drink brands. You sort of start with those like specialist retailers and then you go from there. Yeah, I suppose if you go to anyone else and say like, well, we've been in Selfridges, mm-hmm. they're going to instantly think, well, that's credible. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's like one of the things we certainly have learned and I know a lot of other uh, food and drink entrepreneurs learn quickly is like maybe before you launch especially if you're not from this industry you kind of think like wow if I was in Selfridges and Whole Foods and Planet Organic it's like that is very small still you know like it's not going to give you the scale to run a business and pay yourself a salary and I think that's where it gets challenging because a lot of brands get to that point and then it's like now what where do you go beyond that so as like a so as someone who's not from the industry, if someone was getting started now and wanted to get into one of those places, what's that process look like? It it really is as, as simple usually as like getting a buyer's details and reaching out. Um, and then it then it kind of comes down to probably like how on point and culturally relevant is your product offering mm-hmm. in that moment? Because if it's something that, 
you know, if you are at the forefront, if you are the first, whatever it might be, yeah. then those specialist retailers, they'll snap it up. They'll love it. Whereas if you're the 20th coconut water, they'll just ignore you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where people will often sort of struggle to get cut through. They're like, I can't understand why these guys don't want to list my granola. Yeah. It's like, do you have any idea how many granolas these guys have got in that store? But there's always, there is always a way. And I think like, of course, if you're, if you don't get traction on that first email or call, it's about trying to be creative and sort of do something that makes you stand out yeah, whilst yeah. not going so far to piss them off. I think like there's some, maybe some myths in the industry that like buyers love it when you just rock up and demand to see them. It's like, <laughs> they really don't. They really, really don't. Unless you're doing it in a pretty creative way. Yeah, because your, your product is like, it is sparkling water. So there are a million sparkling waters, but it's so different mm. that you 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 don't get that resistance from the buyers because it's a completely different type of sparkling water. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like we, of course, get resistance from buyers. Like I think any brand does, um, depending on the scale, right? So, you know, like it may be that a supermarket or like a food service wholesaler, it, like th- there's always something for them to have an issue with because that's part of the game and part of the negotiation process. Just to like dispel that myth immediately. It's not like we just walk in and, and get whatever we want. Um, mm. Not at all. So it's always a challenge. You always have to be creative as to your approach to the specific retailer, wholesaler, customer. But yeah, I think like points of differentiation and disruption are really important. If you're going in with something that is essentially they already have, they're probably not particularly interested. Yeah, so you could do a coconut water, but you just have to flip it on its head and be so totally different, I guess. Yeah, like so so like a great example would have been like at Vita Coco, there was all these coconut waters that essentially came into the market and did almost the exact same thing, mm. didn't really get cut through, even though some of those brands were backed by like Coke and Pepsi, they were just not differentiated enough. But then there was a brand that came in with like a essentially like a super premium chilled high quality coconut water that suddenly started kind of crushing in like Whole Foods and Waitrose and those premium retailers because it did have a point of differentiation. And so like it can be done uh, or like in the US, there's a, a brand called Body Armor, which is now the second biggest sports drink brand in the US. It's like a coconut water base. So it's now it's now behind Gatorade, bigger than like Powerade in the States wow. because they've They've taken, I guess, like the idea and the the trend behind the category, but then used it in a different disruptive way to disrupt a category that was kind of needed disrupting because it Mm. was incredibly kind of the incumbent brands were very unhealthy, like sort of uh, neon orange, neon blue brands. So they've done an amazing job of that. Wicked. So... You, you're first starting out. What does your um, what does your space look like? Are you working from home? Have you got an office? So, when we were when we were at, still at Vice Coco, Hugh and I literally just worked out of yeah his flat, my flat, um, cafes, wherever we could. We got a space pretty quickly after we left Vice Coco, which was just a couple of desks in this office in Shoreditch, which was. Which was fine, except for it was at like the top of a, a building, like five stories up, with no lift. And when yeah. you're on a drinks brand and you get a delivery, that that's not cool. Oh. Uh, plus, we were sharing this office with a load of like tech companies, and it was like these people just sitting there with their headphones in, like quietly working, whilst you and I are like <laughs> talking to buyers and suppliers. And it, 
it became pretty clear pretty quick that that wasn't the right space. So we actually moved down to like a little shipping container in uh, Elephant and Castle. And we were there for, yeah, like a couple of years, loved it. Um, it was kind of a great, a great startup space where we could just kind of, we had like room to work, but we had storage. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, it was just good, good vibe down there. Was it a conscious decision to put the drink in a can? Yeah, so when we very, very first launched it, it was actually in a plastic bottle because we thought that was sort of the only option in a way. Like, we didn't truly understand. <clears throat> My background was kind of sales, commercial, huge was like marketing and brand. We weren't and probably still aren't that kind of on top of the manufacturing side of things. And so, yeah, people kind of told us, like, oh, this is how you do this product. This is what it's got to look like. But within kind of, honestly, probably a few days, we kind of, realized that the plastic bottle wasn't what consumers wanted and also mm -hmm. <clears throat> wasn't particularly in line with our kind of morals and what we wanted to do uh, and so we pivoted away from that towards the the cans and <clears throat> ever since that moment it's been such a kind of key part of our brand identity like we are all about that kind of like cold can moment yeah. and that is our brand really and it's given us the direction to really kind of almost like front into those big soda brands and challenge them in a way that i think if we were in bottles it just wouldn't wouldn't be the same yeah that's a really interesting mm. point yeah and so do you find people have it as like an alternative to an alcohol yeah we do i think it says probably says a lot about uh hugh and i that as soon as we launched this healthy drinks brand like all our friends and family were like it's great with booze you know um, <laughs> so yeah people definitely mix it um i think it's not like our primary usage yeah um, yeah <clears throat> but if people want to mix it with with booze then then great it's just like a <clears throat> It's a great thing to have if I'm like at home having beers with mates, like I will just, you know, like crush a beer, crush an ugly kind of yeah, you alternate yeah. and you just end up feeling so much better, so much fresher yeah. um, than if you're just drinking beer all night. Yeah, because I can imagine like, well, if you're out with your mates and you open a can, it doesn't really matter what it is, but if you were there drinking like a water bottle, yeah, it's a bit of a kind of a different like that kind of connotation attached to that. For sure. And I think like the can is, it's just such a key part of this. And we kind of saw what was happening in like craft beer, for, for yeah. example, and all those brands going into cans and then the, the, the kind of like personality and fun they were able to build around those mm -hmm. cans in a way that you just can't do in a bottle. Completely agree. There is just something magical about like if you're on a train and someone cracks a can, you just like your ears prick up straight yeah, away. Yeah. You're, just, you're thirsty. Like you want that, that experience. And I think, the thing that more than anything we've realized is people, there are loads of people out there who drink soda or diet soda, know they shouldn't, want to stop, <clears throat> but there's some sort of kind of almost addiction to it. Yeah. yeah, it's a habitual thing where you're used to that kind of cold can at three o'clock, it gets you through the day. And actually those people aren't going to just suddenly start drinking tap water or bottles mm -hmm. of water. But if you can give them that feeling uh, instead, and we we have had so many consumers like message us being like, thank you, like I've been addicted to like diet soda for yeah. three years and I haven't been able to kick the habit until ugly and now I can and I have. It's just like um, quitting smoking, isn't it? Like it, people need the, it's it's more the action of holding the cigarette and, and everything that goes in, like the almost like a ritual yeah. of yeah, pulling the ring pull and, and holding the can, I guess is it's an easier departure from those sugary, sugary drinks to do it that way. Yeah, I think I heard something the other day that was like, when you go to smoke a cigarette, you get the chemical rush from your brain before you've even smoked it. Yeah, dopamine is anticipation. It's yeah, not yeah. the actual delivery of the... 
Yeah, which is really interesting. And like I find that because like, I love a sugary drink. And then um, you guys sent us a case of this like ages ago. And like I would just go to that instead. And it's like I don't need the sugar. I just need something and I want fizz. Yeah. And so it's like it's great to have something that isn't just going to be bad for me. We, it's amazing, right? We, we see it all the time where the, f- the first sip, if you've never tried Ugly and you have your first sip, sometimes it can be a little bit of a shock because it comes in a bright can. It looks like it probably would be a super sugary sweet drink and it's almost what people are expecting. Your brain is ready for it. Yeah. Then you get like a really subtle, crisp, refreshing flavour. Um, and, and I've watched like thousands of people now have their yeah. first sip uh, and I'm used to that reaction. Everyone kind of like narrows their eyes and it's like, yeah. huh. But actually like by the time you finish a can or if you have two, three cans, you, you kind of get it. And, and yeah, we talk about it a little bit internally. It's almost like three cans and you're hooked. Like yeah. if we get, <laughs> we get people to drink a couple or two, three, like then they just get it. And because of the, because the liquid is so clean in a way you just can't do with almost any other kind of drink, you can drink like five a day, 10 a day, like you can just keep going. So mm-hmm. the way people consume this product is super exciting. Like we sell so many kind of full cases online, people just fill the fridge and then, yeah, it's just like, you know, Easy. twice in the yeah. morning twice in the afternoon people are just kind of crushing a can and you don't have to worry about it i think my entry into being a healthy person which i really try and be now was through realizing sugary drinks i think i heard it on a podcast or watched it on tv or something but when i because i had i had no idea I, you know there's sugar in these drinks but i didn't realize that you're just like mainlining sugar like directly into your veins like straight away and and there's no there's no fiber or anything in there and that was when i realized like okay if i can cut out sugary drinks then like everything and it did everything else kind of fell into place after that yeah and that it's like the motivation for us was it is so boring to stop drinking these like amazing fun brands and start drinking like water and we wanted to give people something that they could be like psyched to drink like you mm. didn't have to feel like Ugh, like i'm oh, on a diet yeah. i won't eat that it's like no like i love ugly like, i'm just gonna drink this instead because it's mm. awesome and like that that kind of was was always the motivation for us like how do you get how do you create something that people are psyched to be sitting down at their desk and putting on the desk uh, next to them or like walking along the street holding that's kind of why we've developed this brand and it's sort of the biggest challenge in a way for us in that yeah as discussed when you first see it you might expect something a little bit different so we kind of almost rely on this amazing like word of mouth thing that, that is beginning to happen and, yeah. and we're trying to cultivate where people are like oh have you tried ugly it's so good in offices we see it the most clearly like you launch in an office and you'll get those like early adopters who love it and mm-hmm. then you get all those people who are like what is that why do you drink that it doesn't taste <laughs> of anything and then uh, you know like over time everyone has converted and we've seen like we're stocked in to be honest, like almost all the top like tech offices in London and it's just become this like hopefully like quite kind of cult thing where people just crush ugly in yeah. those in those I suppose like for uh like if you own a business with lots of people in, you don't want them drinking shit all day because it's yeah. not gonna produce the best work. Whereas if you can actually hydrate them, yeah. Then Well that's it. And like in some of those big tech offices, right? Like in Facebook or something, it's like Everything is free. Mm-hmm. Though you know the employees don't pay for drinks and snacks, 
And first, like, couple days in the job, you know, it's so exciting and you're crushing, like, three Mars bars and a pack of M&Ms yeah. and four cans of Coke. And then you realise pretty quick that, like, you don't want to drink that and eat, the, eat yeah. any of that. And um, suddenly it's like, oh, there is this thing which I actually can drink five of a day yeah. and it's fine. So I can imagine you must start working somewhere like that and put on weight within the first few months. Because yeah. um, but we did a job once in, like, a big office that had loads of free drinks. And it was a huge office, so we'd be painting over different places. And I'd get a can and I'd be drinking it, and I'd put it down on the desk, and I'd be walking around, and I'm like, there's a thousand desks in this office. I can't work out where that can was. So I'd go and get another one. Yeah. And the amount of sugar I probably consumed in that day and or of half cans, just because they were just dotted all around this yeah. giant office. Yeah, it was insane. It's because it's free. I feel like there's definitely a mentality of, if it's free, I'm just going to consume as much as possible. It's, it's funny, like, as you can imagine, like, as a food and drink brand, you get sent loads of products from other brands and stuff. And it's great, right? But when you have like cases and cases of something and it's free, you quite quickly get bored of it. It's mm-hmm. like that you love it when it's when you have to pay like, four <laughs> quid for it. And then often you get bored of it pretty quick. Uh, but the feedback we always get from everyone is like, no one ever gets bored of ugly because it is, it's more of like a, it's a moment. It's not like something you have once and you're done. Um, yeah, yeah. It's just <clears throat> something that people build into their daily routines. Going back to you've kind of just moved into like a slightly bigger office. What stage did you get to when you employed your first person? From pretty much day one, we basically employed um, we employed a few interns who we obviously paid, but the plan was like they'll just be this like young, hungry group of people who are just out there kind of like selling the product, marketing the brand, talking to consumers. And that was the approach. So we hired a, yeah, a, f- a few interns initially. And then two of those interns actually did a great job for us and ended up um, staying in the business and kind of full-time roles. And one of those interns, Ola, is our global brand manager currently. So oh, she's great. kind of from the very beginning to that, you know, the, the, the original hustle, she's now like, overseen this brand in like the UK and the US um mm-hmm. so yeah like it, it, we've always sort of wanted to bring like people on the journey and build a team of of uh, amazing people as we do this it's amazing that you're looking after the people who were there with you in the in the beginning in the trenches yeah i mean and and the thing is like Hugh and I, for example, with all those, like we trust her so implicitly because she's seen everything. Like she really knows this brand as well as Hugh and I, if not better, you know, like she really does. It is like she is part of the DNA of this brand. So we can trust her to that level. What was it about her that you made you think, ah, she'll be good for the role? (laughs) I know she's just got like, she's, she's persistent. She's got great, great kind of uh, positive attitude. And, and apart from anything else, she's, she's like a doer. She just gets things done, which in a small team is so important. Um, I think like, to be honest, if you look back at, you know, every single employee we've ever had, most great couple, not quite as great. It's like the, the sort of work ethic is pretty much the most important thing. Yeah. If people are really kind of putting the hours in and, and care, then they're probably going to be great. Yeah, I think for a small team as well, it's so important. Like we've got a relatively small team here. And I think if you don't have that work ethic, if you work for a huge company, that might just get ignored or you can kind of hide away. But as soon as you're in a small team and you're not putting the work in and you don't have the passion everyone else has, it's really obvious. Yeah. And then that's suddenly quite a large percentage of your business. 
No, for sure. Uh, and it's like, for example, in the US, where we're obviously much newer to the market, like mm. we are building that team now. And it's really challenging, right? Because there isn't the like kind of culture that's been built up over the last few years in, in the UK. Like we're almost starting from scratch in a way in the yeah. US. So Hugh's out there. Um, but that team is, you know, it is... It's obviously in a different market with different kind of personalities and cultural norms. And, and we obviously want like global consistency. So, you know, that's the challenge is like build that same kind of ethic and like work culture in the US as we have in the UK. Regarding going to the US, like when you obviously started here, there wasn't really, you're like breaking the mold in a way. Mm. But in America, there's already kind of like a seltzer drinks to a flavored, like a LaCroix kind of thing that's really yeah. popular how do you approach that differently? So that's it. Like we have two completely different challenges on our hands. Like here, it's all about education as to what this liquid is and why people should be drinking it. Almost no one has tried this kind of liquid before. And so there's a lot of, of that like basic education. In the US, our role is to sort of disrupt those some really big brands out there like LaCroix. And we don't need to do anything around education. It's all around like the strength of the brand, the quality of the product, the flavor profile. So it just means there's like nuances in each market. In the UK, for example, our flavors are kind of entry flavors, lemon and lime, triple berry, orange. They're sort of flavor profiles that people are familiar with to kind of almost like get them into the category. Whereas in the US, we've gone slightly more, I'd guess, uh, bold and exciting. Mm -hmm because people are ready so we have like a pina colada and we have like a cherry a peach we have a watermelon so you kind of have to play each market separately and we we you know like we produce in the uk for the uk market we produce in north america for the north american market yeah. you know everything is there's that there's that phrase that is kind of cringe but like global right so it's like we try and think global but also like act local yeah would you um test those flavors over here yeah for sure um i think like we we certainly have from our kind of like core fans a lot of like uh people passionately protesting for the introduction of u.s flavors yeah. and that kind of thing so so just about getting the timing right like we aren't ready in the u.s and the uk to have like a range of 10 flavors yeah um so we have to kind of strategically launch the right innovation at the right time have you ever done any special editions so we haven't yet. It's definitely something we'd look at. What we have done in the US, for example, is uh, sort of crowdsourced the flavors that we will launch. Mm -hmm. So when we originally launched, we had three flavors. We began to build up a real community. Our US kind of platform is a really strong kind of direct consumer platform. And we have thousands of subscribers who, you know, get the product delivered every week or every month. And so we have this amazingly engaged community who we can talk to. So when it came to launching Flavors 4 and then 5 and 6, we just ask people, you know, you ask your actual customers what yeah. flavor they want next. And the first flavor they voted for was watermelon. So we launched watermelon. Yeah, I want to try the watermelon. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good, so good. And then we've done, yeah, pina colada and then pink grapefruit. Pink grapefruit is incredible. That's that's the one for me. You mentioned the um, the subscription service. Yeah. Like that's, I feel like that's really like groundbreaking stuff. What? How did that idea come around? I think we're just incredibly conscious that this industry is changing completely and the sort of big incumbent brands and the traditional retail model that even like five years ago was how you would build a business you're seeing so many examples of brands now disrupting that you know like in the uk you see like Grays or someone like that who launched a huge dtc business and then pivoted into retail it just is the the future right so we felt like not only do we have to be there, but also it gives us a competitive edge. Our kind of competitors 
in both markets, to be honest, they're not really playing in that space. And then because of the nature of the product, like it is habitual, like it is something that you want cases in your fridge at all times. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of lends itself to that model. And yeah, we, we, we launched it almost exactly a year ago. And, you know, within like a month, I think we had orders from like every single state in the US. People already love seltzer and you know, we were able to kind of quite quickly begin speaking to those consumers and then, you know, adding them to our community. And it's just really helping us in terms of how we now kind of develop the brand and the range and look, you know, one year, three years, five years ahead, because we have this kind of customer base we can speak to. Whereas if we were just sitting in traditional retail stores, like we'd, we'd be blind to it. And you've, you've not been over in the US for long. So how have you marketed to, to be getting orders from every single state how did you market were you using like facebook ads or what was your yeah it's a combination um so yeah a little bit of like facebook and instagram but also the launch we got some we were able to get some really great pr around it because yeah it was the fact that like seltzer is so hot in the us so people like writing about it anyway and then you have this brand which is from a brand point of view is exciting but is offering this really like unique distribution model so we got a lot of articles that were kind of like the hit new seltzer brand that you yeah. can order to your door and you know that kind of stuff yeah just just gets shared and and suddenly you kind of people are people are signing up and you're getting referrals and you know we're learning a lot because you know for for Hugh and I like this D2C and that that world is not our natural background so we've kind of had to self teach uh, ourselves how the whole thing works but like the good thing is you can change and iterate so quickly you don't have to wait for like a ranging window with a retailer or anything like that so yeah have learned a huge amount or continue to learn a huge amount but has been super exciting and is kind of at the core of what we do now you always manage to keep up with demand because i can imagine when you go to america you don't know what's going to happen and was there ever a stage when you were like we're getting more orders than we can fill so we definitely have had moments like that where you suddenly have to kind of flex up and down i'd say one thing with particularly canned drinks as opposed to a lot of other things is the minimum run is really high in terms of like how many you have to produce at a time so sometimes it's more a case of like oh god we do we have to produce like yeah what kind of numbers so the the minimum is usually about a hundred thousand cans per flavor yeah and so yeah like when we initially launched the business for example in the uk like there's so many when you don't Mm. have any customers yeah and it's quite a scary thing versus like if you launch something in a bottle where you know you might have to make 10,000 or 5,000 mm-hmm. so it's like quite a high barrier to entry with cans when you did first start how much did it cost like and where did you find that money to launch so the costs the main costs were really on just that production Hugh and I basically funded everything ourselves initially kind of up until the point where we left our jobs so you know we didn't have much money at all but we sort of worked it as as tightly as we could and then at the point when we left Vitacoco we did like a very small like friends and family fundraise to kind of get us to the point where we could like do that production run and get pay our our branding agency not very much money and um, you know hire those initial interns so it was kind of like very small scale like lean kind of lean startup mentality uh, initially and I think again like we've learned so much right it's like I don't know whether that is the best way to do it to be honest like you look back and you go oh, I wonder if we just raised loads of money at the beginning this might have been way easier I don't know but I think like one thing is we we definitely made a lot of mistakes 
and every brand does. And so making mistakes on super tight budget is better mm -hmm. than if you've blown like hundreds of thousands of pounds on something and then figure out it's, it's not quite right. So it allowed us the time we needed to get the proposition right. Regarding mistakes, what are like some big things that you've made that you could like, if you did it again, you'd definitely not do that? I think really understanding what our strengths are and therefore our, our weaknesses. Like I said, like Hugh and I are not like operational manufacturing production kind of people. And I think every brand goes through this, but like it's so painful when things go wrong at production or, um, you know, the packaging isn't quite printed right, that kind of thing. So there's loads of examples of that. And does that come down to sort of admin on your side? Is it that sort of, or is it more? I think it's, it's sometimes it's like, yeah, sometimes we make mistakes and other times, unfortunately, right sometimes it's just out of your control and that mistakes are made and it, that is just super challenging so we that there's a kind of like an unofficial motto in the business which is um the obstacle is the way it's a there's a book by ryan holidays um of that title it's about stoicism and in the very early stages of the business when we were making <laughs> mistakes hugh happened to be reading that book and it kind of helped us navigate some of those mistakes you know i'm not going to say that we're actually incredibly calm and 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 uh, stoic when the mistakes happen like mm -hmm. of course there's like at times emotional reactions and things but as a total team now i think we're well we're well set up to like manage those things and you just realize that everything is relative when you first start the business the little mistakes feel so big and they feel so personal and like everything's going to go wrong and you look back on them and you're like oh it's so irrelevant <laughs> it did, <laughs> did not matter one it's crazy bit. isn't it but they feel like such big issues in the in the moment yeah no for sure i'm uh, currently practicing stoicism because for the past 20 minutes i've been worried that um just got a message saying our tattoo studio around the corner is uh has a flood in the basement currently so i'm just like freaking out <laughs> it's fine it'll be fine i've been told that there's people on it so we'll we'll be okay cool um so do you kind of read a lot of, of business books and podcasts and things like that yeah to an extent i think um probably a couple of years ago read way more mm -hmm. and then you do also get to a stage where you kind of like I can't read anymore like I'm, yeah. you, you're kind of almost absorbing too much content at times so I think like for example when it comes to podcasts I've certainly cut down on the number of like business podcasts and I tend to now try and listen to podcasts more for like pleasure as yeah. a as a kind of as a break from that world yeah. to an extent but there's definitely been some like amazing I think there's been a few like formative whether it's podcast books that have kind of really helped us over the years, for sure. Is there any that really stand out? So yeah, The Obstacle is the Way is definitely one. There's one called uh, Opening Happiness by Tony Shea, which is like taught us a lot about kind of brand experience and customer service, which is quite amazing. The Magic of Thinking Big is a really good book in terms of like, yeah, just sort of pushing yourself to think in like 10x terms, for example. Podcast-wise, yeah, like uh, I think probably uh there's some some cliched ones that in the early years we listened to a lot of like tim ferris or like gary vaynerchuk i've sort of weaned myself off those i think at this point why have, why have you weaned yourself off of them is it just like kind of too intense too much going on sort of yeah exactly i think as as i said like at this point tend to listen to more like just things that i enjoy as downtime but of course like if someone sends me something saying this is a great episode then i'll always pick it up again yeah i think it's just there's so much going on and you know if you are every day listening to two different business podcasts 
you're, you're suddenly trying to implement all these ideas that you hear and they are obviously great ideas but I think what we learn is for example for our poor team it's like it's quite hard when Hugh and I go back and like right we're suddenly going to do this new system because we heard it on a podcast and then a week later we hear a different one and try and implement that so we're trying to kind of be a bit more disciplined and let uh, habits form over a little bit longer uh, at this point what's the best advice that you've ever been given I think the thing that kind of sticks in my mind right now is it's kind of around patience and I think everyone says to you it will take longer than you think and you go yeah yeah I know like it's gonna take longer I get it but like it really does whether it be like building the business whether it be raising money like everything just always takes longer um, and you kind of have to be ready for that and, and account for that yeah that's one that rings true right now do you ever get people um, sort of reaching out and asking you for advice? Yeah, all the time. Um, and we try and be as helpful as possible, I guess. Yeah, over the years, like we, both you and I certainly like try and speak to people, try and help people as much as possible. What I would say is like the way that people reach out is probably important. And like sometimes, I'm sure people don't mean to, but they can reach out in a very kind of like direct, like rude way at times. And it's just kind of like, it basically like, we'll try and help anyone but like make it easy for us you know like yeah um, <laughs> yeah uh, you know like don't ask me to come meet you in like west london at a really weird time if yeah. you want to ask me questions you, you need to come to me that kind of thing yeah. yeah absolutely what what are the most common um questions that young entrepreneurs are asking you i think a lot of questions about fundraising a lot of questions around manufacturing and how you actually get set up I think typically like entrepreneurs tend to have like pre-stars entrepreneurs tend to have like great ideas and often like brand visions but then don't know how to actually implement that yeah. that great idea and that's the bit that yeah it's just comes from experience unfortunately and and we are learning all the time and we had to ask so many people uh, in our early stage so I have a lot of sympathy for for those people yeah I feel like we're really similar yeah in that we you get all of these people coming to you for advice and at first when like before we started the podcast we were sort of think what are you asking me for i don't know i'm just <laughs> kind of working out myself and and um yeah we're, we're sort of at that level where we've we've all definitely like achieved something but we're still on that path of learning ourselves and going through challenges in our businesses and i, I think it's again it is a little bit of cliche but it's like the more you know the less you know as in like I now know enough that I know nothing because, you know, like everything, nothing is certain in this industry and things that like I took for granted two years ago are no longer true. Yeah. And I think just knowing that is, is like helpful for sure. Yeah. Cause the industry, uh, like the industry you're in is changing so rapidly that if you, if you're not staying on top of it, you'll get, just get left behind. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, we try and almost be disciplined enough to, to rip it up and start again every every few months if we need to and I mean that like in every sense whether it be like you know our approach to how we're meeting consumers or our like direct to consumer mentality or like the literally the product and the and the flavor range like we will challenge anything if it needs to be challenged and and are happy to do so yeah which is which is brave which I guess is the overrunning theme of uh I guess this podcast is is being brave yeah i mean we we it's a funny word right because obviously we would never call ourselves that <laughs> we just think we'd we do it because we 
believe in this and we think that people should be drinking less sugar and less artificial ingredients. But last year, for example, we were super honoured because we were voted in like the Brave Brands of the Year Award for 2018, which there was originally, uh, initially there was 20 brands on there and all the brands on that list were like, 100 million plus brands like it was huge brands and us and then and then it was the final five and we were in the final five with like skittles sky body form and it was just crazy to be in that kind of company we went to the awards do and like we sat on this table and it was just quite clear that most of the room had no idea who we are who we were sorry and uh yeah we just to be kind of like in that in that list was super exciting for us did you did you win? No, we didn't win. It was <laughs> it was a vote on the night, as in like everyone in the room, the hundreds oh, of, no. of, of marketing professionals voted, and given that most of them might not have known who yeah. we were, it didn't really play to our to our strengths. But it was a great experience for sure. Yeah, and in, and incredible to get down to the uh, to the final five. Yeah. So where can people find you online? So website is just uglydrinks.co.uk. You can find us on social media, Ugly Drinks UK. And yeah, in the US we have uh, Ugly Drinks is the US page. And you see like the, what we were talking about earlier in terms of like global, it's like the same, but different. Amazing. Thanks so much. Well, thanks so on. much, dude. Thank you guys. Thanks for listening. We're trying to help a lot of people with this show. So we need your help to grow the community and spread our message. If you know someone who'd benefit from hearing what we talked about today, or they just need a little nudge in the right direction, pass this podcast on to them. If you want to hear more, then subscribe to us on iTunes. And if we helped you with anything, we'll really love you forever. If you can leave us an iTunes review, it makes a huge difference. See ya.